So Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 1. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple and after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Well, I've uh, pastored a few churches through the years. Two particularly stand out in my mind and uh, they happen to be my two shortest pastorates, not for any bad reason. Uh, my first church was, it still is, an old church, well past its heyday at that point. You know, when I, I arrived there, I think we halved the average age of the congregation. It was that old. The building was crumbling uh, and we moved into a manse because that's the only way we could afford to move into the area. That was so bad, my mum actually cried when she saw it. But when you're young and uh, naive and enthusiastic, you do things like that. My son was a baby at the time. He used to get splinters crawling along the floor. It wasn't an easy church, but God was gracious. Um, The church made some hard decisions, uh, made its property useful, and it's still there today. Praise God. Over a decade later, I was pastor at uh, another church. Before I got there, the church had made the decision to renovate, um, but I don't really think that was a wise decision. They they could have made better ones. See, the problem was they were tucked away right in the back blocks of the western suburbs, so surrounded by houses, which you think, oh, that's great, but western suburbs is hard. They didn't have a whole lot of exposure Uh, like street frontage and no major road. It was a suburban street. No room for expansion. You have to be careful when you're surrounded by residential. Um, It was a beautiful building. People were beautiful. Uh, I loved it. I loved the people. That building was sold last year. One was a house of God where God evidently made a home. And for some reason, the other he apparently did not. And I'm certainly not impugning the people at the other church. But it's just interesting how these things work. If you've been tracking our series in Mark, you might recall that Mark has a motif in his gospel that we call the messianic secret. And the idea is that you as the reader know who Jesus is because Mark sort of sets it up that way. But as we go through the gospel, no one in the story, really knows who Jesus is. The disciples start to come to an understanding, but Mark only ever hints at the identity of Jesus, his true identity as Messiah and as God, as we go along. And it's sort of because we've been clued in that we 
pick up those clues as we go. And so here Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And this is a time of great celebration as pilgrims from all over Israel and all over the world make their way to the holy city for this ancient feast. And so it's not surprising that there's quite a crowd with Jesus as he goes up. Some have come with him, and we saw that last week, but there are others who he would have just bumped into on the road because sort of everyone was coming uh, to Jerusalem. It's, it's what they did. And so he would have met crowds of random people on the way. As they come and approach Jerusalem, they come to these two villages, Bethpage and Bethany. Now, um, this is the normal pilgrim route, route, and we'll find that he, as we go on in the story, he'll camp at Bethany. But the mention of Bethphage is a really interesting little detail because nothing seems to happen there. Uh, but it, there's an interesting little thing about Bethpage, and if you read ahead, you might pick up on uh, the significance of this. That Bethpage actually means house of unripe figs. So if you don't know what's coming next, come next week and you'll find out. But I wonder if, for those who know, that's a little flag Mark is setting up about the next section. The house of unripe figs. Bethany, on the other hand, is the home of some of Jesus' closest friends, um, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And Bethany means house of business or house of delight. And Jesus is going to camp there in this week while he's ministering in Jerusalem. I don't know about you. I find that interesting. So he sends his disciples into the village ahead. Doesn't tell us which one. With instructions about a cult. Foal of a donkey. And this immediately triggers in any Bible nerd's radar, which Mark was, a reference to a prophecy about the coming Messiah in the book of Zechariah. Now, Matthew actually quotes this in his uh, gospel, but Mark only hints at it. So Zechariah 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this colt, we're told, is one that no one had ever sat on. And uh, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the Old Testament laws that talk about certain sacrifices needing to be made for, uh, from heifers that had never been used for plowing. You remember that one? You don't? No, I'm not surprised. It's all right. And there's other stories about having to use animals that have never pulled a cart and so on. The, the idea is this is a young, unused animal that is being set apart for a sacred purpose. And Mark just seems to, because this is a lot of detail, isn't it, that Mark's giving us about what seems to be just a, a coincidental event on the road. But I think actually he's really setting us up and understanding, helping us understand what Jesus said about coming to fill up the scriptures. And so Jesus anticipates that the disciples may be challenged about taking the colt and instructs them to tell anyone 
that the Lord has need of it. Again, now I have to say, as I was reading through and preparing for this message, scholars debate all of these points. Uh, so there'll be some who will agree with me. Well, it's more that I'm not agreeing with them because they're smarter than me and got there first. And uh, I'm agreeing with others. But the Greek word Lord, you might be familiar. Uh, Kurios is, is the Greek. We translate it Lord. It can simply mean a master. You know, we use Lord as uh, a title for um, important people. But it's also the word used specifically for the name of God, the name Yahweh in the New Testament. And so there's a question here about, is this a veiled reference to Jesus? Was Jesus saying, now now this is a debate among the scholars, was Jesus saying, tell them that the Lord has need of it, the master, the owner of the donkey, effectively. Which kind of seems, why would Mark include that? Or is Jesus saying the Lord has need of it, the Lord God? Is... Jesus giving a veiled reference to his identity. Now, Jesus doesn't often do this, call himself or refer to himself as Lord in Mark's gospel, or Mark doesn't recount those times very much. But I wonder if this is one of those subtle hints that Mark's using about Jesus' true identity. And as the disciples untie the donkey, we might or might not also recall a prophecy that Jacob gives as he's giving his blessing to his sons just before he dies, uh, his son Judah, when they were in Egypt. In Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 to 11, Jacob says, The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belong to him. He ties his donkey to a vine and the colt of his donkey to the choice vine. Now, I'm not sure that Jacob had this in mind when he gave those words. But Jesus said, as I mentioned a moment ago, in the Sermon of the Mount, he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fill it up, to fulfill it. And Jesus is just doing that richly in the events leading up to his death particularly. Well, then the pilgrims start praising God and invoking the coming messianic kingdom of David. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now again, more debate among scholars, which just says something about the depth and and sometimes the subtlety of scripture that even the experts can't agree. But what's interesting is that this may not have seemed so out of place for the pilgrims going up. You see, the pilgrims went up every year for Passover. Um, in the Old Testament, God had commanded them to the Passover was done in Jerusalem, primarily, and uh, one or two other feasts as well. And as they went up to Jerusalem, uh, if you've opened up your psalm sometimes and you've seen a psalm of ascent, they, they were the songs that they sang as they went up to Jerusalem for those, these pilgrim feasts. Now, They're quoting one of the Psalms here. It's not one of the Psalms of Ascent, but they wouldn't have only quoted those. These people were expecting Messiah. They were hoping for Messiah. They were eagerly awaiting his kingdom. And yes, the crowd is throwing their cloaks out and palm branches in front of Jesus, but I wonder if they really realize what's going on. 
Now, Mark is flagging to us, the king is coming for his coronation. But none of this really pans out how you'd expect. If, if there was this great mob coming to crown Jesus as king, in the political climate of the day, do you really think the Romans and the religious elites in Jerusalem who love their position and were in cahoots with the Romans, do you think they really would have let this go ahead at this point? This is a coup, effectively. Or is it just another Passover celebration? The people are getting up, swept up in the joy of the occasion. Yes, Jesus is a popular preacher. And he signals, he, he in some way embodies their hopes. But is he really the Messiah? The disciples know he is. But do the people. And don't forget, this has been a feature, as I've just mentioned, of Mark's gospel, this secret identity of Jesus. People don't get who Jesus is. Even when he's working miracles and raising the dead and saying outrageous things like your sins are forgiven when only God has the power and the authority to forgive sins. And so here it seems again the crowd is unwittingly swept up in something that is bigger and deeper than they can possibly imagine. But yes, if we think this is a crowd welcoming the coming king, that is exactly what we're meant to think. They may not realize what's going on, but we do. The king... The Messiah, God himself, is coming to Jerusalem. Last week, we saw that when Jesus set out, the disciples were astonished and the crowd was afraid because they knew that Jerusalem was the center of opposition to Jesus. So can you imagine, particularly for these followers of Jesus, not the, the random people who have come on and, and just swept up in the joy of the occasion, but the people who have been following Jesus and they've seen the conflicts and they've heard him talk about, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And suddenly this thing is happening and it's what's going on. Can you? How would you be feeling in that moment? What's going to happen? Are we going to cop it now? Is this, is this the time? Is this the time when the authorities come out and arrest Jesus? Or is this a is it actually happening? Is the Messiah going to take up his throne in Jerusalem? The heart-pounding palpitations and fear and excitement. What's going to happen? Is this it? And Jesus goes into the temple. You and I know that this is the king, the Davidic king coming to you. This is God coming to his temple. Is this it? What's going to happen? Jesus looks around the temple and leaves. What? What? Is that it? Is this it? What an anticlimax. Jesus does nothing. He goes back to Bethany. As a child, Jesus had said, I have to, didn't you know, mum and dad, he gets left or forgotten, left behind in Jerusalem. He's happy. He says to his parents when they finally catch him, up there, don't you know I had to be in my father's house? Not now, apparently. Jesus is going to be in Jerusalem every day, but he doesn't sleep there. 
He'll come into the temple courts, but he doesn't worship there. This is not where the Son of God resides. It's not where he lives. And while the king has come to be crowned, to be enthroned, he hasn't come to be enthroned to the adoration of the an adoration of the crowd, but in the shame of a cross. But I'm jumping ahead. Well, as Rose said, normally we'd read this story on the Sunday before Easter. But Ash Wednesday is this Wednesday. It marks the commencement of Lent. Now, we don't usually make a big deal of Lent in our church, but I think it's appropriate that as we come, everything we read now is the week before Jesus' crucifixion, his, his Passion Week. We're in the home stretch of Matthew's Gospel, even though we're only two-thirds of the way through it. So it's appropriate that we hit this mark as we enter Easter and ask ourselves, what does this story mean for us? Well, you know, many Christians, I hope that's us, are like the people of Israel, longing for their king to come, in our case, to come again, longing to see God move with power. And this is right, we should long for such a thing. And you know, history is littered with stories of revival where even one or two people got together and they longed for God to move. They would pray passionately night after night, day after day, until a spark was lit. And you get things like the Great Awakening in America or the Wesleyan revivals in the UK. Do you know those revivals under Wesley and Whitfield in the 17th, 18th century in England, while France was practically on fire with the French Revolution and thousands of people are dying, England is experiencing revival. People say it was probably because of the work of those men that England didn't experience its own French Revolution, so to speak. And others as well, the Welsh revival, and you've probably heard of others as well, We cry, do it again, God. Do it in our city. Do it in Perth. But there's a warning and an opportunity in this text for us. See, Jesus passes through Bethpage and Bethany to Jerusalem, through the house of unripe figs and the house of delight into the city where God has set up his home on earth. The temple was the spiritual center of the world. But Jesus only stays in one of these places. And I wonder which of them represents our hearts and our church. See, the king is passing by. Are we ready for him? Are we Bethpage, the village of unripe figs? Now, Let's be careful here. An unripe fig is not one that is useless or rejected or anything. It's just not ready. It's going to be ready, hopefully, but it's just not ready yet. Perfectly healthy fig, just still ripening up. It's immature and not ready to be used by the king. And look, immaturity is fine in the young. We expect young people to be immature, right? That's what kids are. 
But there comes a point where we must grow up or we miss the kingdom opportunities that are awaiting us. An unready and immature heart isn't being rejected by God, but it's not where the king resides, so to speak. Now, I'm not talking about salvation. If you are a Christian and you believe in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. But I am talking about moves of God. When when Jesus has an assignment, does he come by way of our lives and set up camp here? Or does he say, oh, I love these people, but they're not ready yet. I need to move on and find someone who is. Is my heart ready for the king? Jerusalem. So next week we'll look at an incident with the fig tree. Um, but for now we see the anticlimax of the God King Jesus entering his temple, his temple. They don't know this, but this is Jesus' temple. He should be in the Holy of Holies where only the high priest can go once a year and people bowing down to him. He enters that temple and does nothing. Now, Mark sort of leaves it a little bit ambiguous what's going on here, but we know as we look forward in the story, this is not good. As I said, as a child, he had to be in his father's house, but apparently his father ain't home anymore. What causes Jesus to reject such a church? Because I think you'd agree there are churches like that. I don't think it's us, but how do we avoid becoming such a church? But then there's Bethany, the house of delight, the house of business. It's a village in which Jesus has close friends and enjoys some of his most intimate and powerful ministry. This is the village where in John's gospel, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, this is where we'll see, actually someone already preached on it, so we're not going to do that story, but where Jesus is anointed with oil in preparation for his death to refuge for him at night as he goes about the busy and challenging days in Jerusalem in the lead up to his death. Isn't this what we desire for our hearts and our families and our church? That Jesus would take up his residence with us. My challenge to you and to me, it's actually a question, is what does it take to be a people and a church where Jesus stays? What differentiates the heart and church that Jesus delights in from the church that, Je that is immature? Well, Jesus still delights in all his churches, but I think you know what I mean. And what differentiates it from the church that God has long left and is only surviving on dead religion and yesterday's stories. Because when I was at Mosman Park, there were people there who lived off yesterday's stories, and it was touch and go for that church. But the question for us is, what must we do to be the church where Jesus is going to stay in and delight in and we see the move of God in? Let's pray. Father,
We thank you that King Jesus has come. Oh, I thank you that we get to see the end of the story because that enthronement is pretty rough. But Jesus, I pray that we will contemplate this question and we will be ready for when you move past and are wanting to do something, that we will neither be just not ready, just immature, miss an opportunity because we have to wait a little longer and certainly not because we've gone to sleep and no longer care. Make us ready. Father, help us to know how to do the work of being ready to receive you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh